You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wise, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit hankgarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is. We're excited to have one of my all-time favorite storytellers back on the show with me, Brad Thor. Um, this is like our 19th podcast we've done together or something like that, Brad. Uh, always look forward to summertime when I knew a new Brad Thor thriller is coming out. You did not disappoint this year with Rising Tiger. Um, I, I'll tell you what, Brad. Um, I know when one of your books comes out, it's going to feel very timely. Um, without being ripped from the headlines timely, if that makes any sense at all. Like, it feels like this is a story that is plausible, even possible, without necessarily being something that's not going to age well. Does does that make sense at all? Yeah, I, so thank you for that lovely introduction. Yeah, my <laughs> I call what I do faction, where you don't know where the facts end and the fiction begins. Right. And I always want to set my thrillers against a big geopolitical set piece. So Rising Tiger, the opening scene is based on something that happened uh, two summers ago, okay. where Chinese troops legitimately, not legitimately in India's eyes, so I'm going to remove, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to strike legitimately, Chinese troops crept over the Himalayas into India, and this border region is called the line of actual control. And in 1996, India and China agreed not to use any firearms in this area so that no skirmishes could spin up a war between those two countries again. So India has been to war a bunch with Pakistan. It's been to war once with China, and it lost. Um, So... Anyway, this uh, these guys, uh, the Chinese soldiers came over the Himalayas with homemade weapons. So we're talking iron rods studded with spikes, baseball wow. bats wrapped, wrapped with barbed wire. And it was a brutal six-hour hand-to-hand, Middle Ages-style uh, melee. And I, I read about this, and I said, gosh, this is fascinating. And the more I dug into it, I, I was just taken with India. I've never set a book there. Uh, America's the lar- uh, oldest democracy in the world. India's the largest. Uh, you and I were talking just about kind of how COVID is changing for us here in the South. I'm I'm in Tennessee. You're in Mississippi. Um, and during the lockdowns and everything, I, I was stunned with how reliant we are on China for manufacturing. Right. Uh, even down to cholesterol medication coming from China. I mean, it's insane how much we depend on them. And yet here we've got this fabulous country, India, that's a democracy like us. We should be drawing closer with India, try to get the Russians out of there and their influence because the Indians buy a lot of military equipment from Russia. So anyway, I had this idea for the thriller. I thought, OK, I'd love to open with that battle scene in the Himalayas. And I said, but what's my big geopolitical set piece going to be? And I said, wouldn't it be interesting if the U.S. <clears throat> excuse me, was quietly trying to set up an Asian version of NATO? It would drive the Chinese crazy, just like NATO expanding drives Putin crazy. Sure. Um, but India has a lot in common with Ukraine. The Chinese hate having a democracy as imperfect as India's is on their border, just the way Putin hates having a democracy as imperfect as Ukraine's is on Russia's border. So 
that was the idea. Going to have a shadow diplomat doing stuff. He's going to get killed. And then my protagonist, Scott Harvat, is going to be brought in to figure out what happened. And so uh, I, I just the more I looked into India, I, I just I fell in love with it. I never thought it was a place I'd want to visit, Hank. I, I just the more research I did, the more I loved India. And I looked around and none of my contemporaries had set a novel, a, a spy thriller in India. And I'm like, OK, I'm going to do it first. Well, that was uh, one of the reasons I was so excited for this book when I saw the early um, uh, the publicity that that um, um, David Brown, your publicist, mm-hmm. the best in the the, the best, best to work guy. with in the industry. Yeah. I love David uh, to pieces. But when I saw this book, um, I, I got excited because I, I was like, this is this is going to be a thriller that that I legitimately have no idea what's going to happen because I, you know, as as populous as India is, I'm ashamed to say that I just I know very little about the uh, I, I know more about the culture from documentaries and, and mm-hmm. things than I do about the political situation. And, you know, and, and you're like, wow, um, I, I feel ashamed that I don't know more. Uh, and, you know, and, and I feel like I actually learned something from your book, which is, oh, I, I guess, cool. where where faction, you know, comes in mm-hmm. because. Because I, I I feel like I am learning something about it. I, I feel better about the world as a whole when I finish a book of yours, because I've learned more, you know, about the inner workings of a place. But I was, uh, you know, a lot of thrillers. Uh, I, I don't want to say take the easy way out by by um, latching on to some of the the stories that are in the headlines. You know, Russia mm-hmm. is once again the big bad. Uh, yeah. On the block, and there's lots of different stories you can tell, you know, based around the, this conflict or, or seeming conflict. But to to take a place that I'm not familiar with at all is, is the biggest joy, you know, oh. that you can get, you know, because it, it's it's a brand new landscape. When you first started thinking about it, how did you familiarize yourself with this? part of the world that that in our American culture just doesn't get looked at as deeply as others? That's a great, that's a great question. And so um, one of the things I did, I'm not a big Bollywood film guy, okay? Um, but I happened to stumble across a Bollywood film that was fantastic. And it was a thriller film. And uh, so in the, I guess, early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, there had been a string of Indian aircraft that were hijacked and it was hijacking after hijacking after hijacking. And the hijackers would always land the plane in Pakistan because they knew they would be let go. The Pakistanis weren't going to storm the plane. You know, these were all extremists that the Pakistanis had sympathy for. And so they would hold the aircraft hostage, the passengers, the crew and all this kind of stuff. So there's this fabulous, fabulous movie uh, and the one thing I didn't like is they had to put a musical number in the middle of a thriller. But I think that's <laughs> part of having your uh, film made in India. That's a Bollywood like it's it's the 11th commandment. Right. Moses had a third tablet not it. It says any film made in Bollywood's got to have a musical number. But the movie, Hank, is called Bell Bottom. And Bell Bottom is the code name for this uh, Indian operative in their research and analysis wing, Raw, that I talk about in my book, which is kind of their version of the CIA. And this guy, uh, it was fantastic. It, it was such a cool movie. Uh, it just ignited my passion for India. And the more I looked into it, the more I researched it. Uh, what struck me, again, 
India is the world's largest democracy, America is the world's oldest, is how much we have in common with India. Uh, particularly things that uh, that we're struggling with here too. There's India is kind of a a mirror of the United States. Things they're dealing with, like uh, misinformation being pushed uh, via social media and websites and things like this. And uh, what does it mean to be the party out of power? What does it mean to be the party in power? So there's a lot of the political process that was very similar to ours. So I, it, it was just so fascinating. And I wanted, uh, I grew up in Chicago and I have friends of Indian descent uh, whose parents might've been first generation, but they were born there. And I wanted to create a book that uh, in Simon & Schuster, India is thrilled with this book. They're really excited. They're going to do it. It's going to be probably the biggest publishing launch I've ever had in India. They're really excited about it. And so when I hear from people, wow, you did a good job, whether you're Indian or not, uh, you really, it was very rich, people tell me. Uh, you know, I just felt like I was there. I could, I could taste the food and all this kind of stuff and see the vibrant colors. That was the bar I set for myself as an author. And I made the joke faction. Uh, <laughs> all right, I said what I do is faction. But my my joke in my office uh, while I was writing the book was I want to put the action in the faction this year. Uh, so wow. I was running a, a spreadsheet. Every time I wrote a chapter, I would do a little synopsis in a cell on my spreadsheet. And I would color code the cell that had the chapter number. If it had action, the cell would, I'd highlight it green. And I wanted to see nothing but green. I wanted to do so much action in this book. And I was able to do it. It's like double the action of last summer's book by the time I got done counting up the chapters. So it was just, it was a lot of fun. Hardest book I've ever written because I didn't know anything about India uh, and I had to learn. So the learning curve was very steep, but it, it's been rewarding. I, I just loved writing this book. You, you said that Simon Schuster India was was really excited about this book. Do you feel like that our connected world, the, the connected nature of our world um, with the Internet and just all of these technologies that have kind of shrunk our global perspective, if you will, do you feel like that that has changed the way you write or um, – the way you tell stories, for instance, I, I, let me give some context to that. So uh, imagine um, an early Tom Clancy book where where Russia is the big bad. Um, mm -hmm. Tom Clancy is not very worried, I would think, about what typical Russian citizens might think about his writing. Um, but the world has changed since then. And, and people in Russia uh, – very well may be picking up a Tom Clancy uh, mm -hmm. thriller if that were if you know we're talking about today's world. Um, so knowing that your audience has expanded uh, not only in the number of readers but in the regions where your book will be available, um, does that change the way you think about stories? Well, I I pride myself on being fair. OK, so I pull no punches when it comes to the Russian government or the Chinese government. I, sure. I don't care for either of those. But the people themselves, I mean, I've been not deep inside China, but I've been to Hong Kong and adventured into China, mainland China. So uh, people are pretty good wherever you go. I mean, yeah. I was in Afghanistan and I, the people were so kind to me. Uh, it got invited into people's homes and they probably spent a month's wages uh, on a dinner. Uh -huh. Best fried chicken I ever had was in Jalalabad <laughs> at someone's house. So 
I try to be fair to the people, and uh, it, but I do call balls and strikes on the government. And uh, so, yeah, not a lot of balls. It's all strikes when I call them on Russia and when I call them on China. So, but I do sell books around the world. So I certainly don't want to antagonize an audience. Uh, but that that means that I'm I'm fair with how I, I deal with things. So um, particularly with this book, for instance, with India, I didn't want it to all be about oh, there's you know just the poverty's crushing and it's just everybody's ill and stuff like that. There is poverty and there is illness uh, and there is garbage piled up in some places, but then they have these incredible festivals where everybody's wearing these beautiful, bright, beautiful clothing and everybody's so into gold. So you'll see men with their gold watches and gold rings and the ladies with their necklaces and, and earrings and all this kind of stuff. So it really runs the gamut, particularly in India. And I, I wanted to showcase all of it. Uh, but in my heart, Hank, I started out as an adult, uh, as a travel journalist. So right. I, and I'm naturally an optimist and a positive person. So I look for the good, whether it's in my neighbor, whether it's in a stranger at the grocery store, whether sure. it's a foreign country, I'm, I'm, I'm going in expecting to find good people and good things that I can be excited about. So that's how I approach my my research. Uh, and, and I'd rather put the information out there in an interesting way and let people draw their own conclusions. But um, so I don't know if that answers your question. I, yeah. I don't intentionally I'm not trying to antagonize any cultures. But if I don't like something like, you know, Russia going into Ukraine or what the China, what the Chinese have done with the Uyghurs or what the one policy, you know, the one child policy, I, I, I touch on very briefly in Rising Tiger because it's it's created a demographic tsunami that the Chinese are going to regret. They have all these fighting age males and not enough women to partner up with those men. And guys, you're a man, I'm a man. You've been out with your buddies. I've been out with my buddies. I've been to enough bar rooms and I see what happens when guys get drunk. <laughs> if they can't pick yeah. up a, a woman, they want to fight. And right. so I talk about the fact just briefly, because I didn't know this until I started doing research for this book, the horrible uh, that next to the birthing bed, uh, a lot of Chinese families are, I want to be careful. There is, there is a bucket of water. Uh, can be placed next to the bed in case a son is not born and the parents want to get rid of a baby girl. Uh, and I just found this repugnant. Uh, I, I just thought it was terrible that you would that you would kill a newborn child because you didn't like the uh, the sex of the baby. And so right. it's a it's a but that all comes from that one child policy in China, which right. I think is so. Again, that's not what the book is about. But I touched on that to say. This is a ticking time bomb for the Chinese because of right. all these fighting age men and not enough women for them to marry and all this kind of stuff. Because I do like to weave in true things, uh, be they good, bad or indifferent, that can help particularly my American readers because that's the majority of my readers. Like, excuse me. I want people to read the book and go, wow, I didn't think about that. You're right. It, that one child policy has been going on. So now you got all these guys in their 20s and their 30s and oh, my God. What are you right. going to do when they can't get girlfriends? And, you know, China's going to send them to war because China doesn't want them, you know, rioting in the streets and stuff. So China's going to get more aggressive with its neighbors and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, there's little details. 
that that one is a really i mean it just it gives me chills to think about that bucket of water there there's not a lot of that stuff i want the listeners to know <laughs> well that was a a major plot point in uh in a tom clancy novel that we were just talking about clancy a few minutes ago uh, really? the, bear, the bear and the dragon i think it was. i did not read the bear and the dragon that's a, their one child policy in china was a major plot point in that book and and it's funny that it that now those chickens come come home to roost and you you're now seeing you know, a generation later of yes. a book like this that, you know, you're starting to see the implications of that. And that's yeah. that's the fun thing about kind of following these global trends is is seeing how these things play out and then what what plots can come from those, you know, that that's and that's it. It is fascinating. And so I found out uh, the reason I got on this in my research is because I was reading articles written by China watchers, people uh, who are involved in U.S. diplomacy, whether it's uh, helping to craft policy uh, towards China, uh, that kind of a thing. And so I'd come across these articles and I'm like, wow, this really is. I hadn't thought about that before writing this book about the one child policy and what it's going to do in China. And I have a friend of mine who's based in Hong Kong. Uh, he's European, and he said, Brad, you'd be stunned how much stuff doesn't make it onto the news in the United mm. States. He says there's civil unrest every day across China. And he goes, you never hear about it in the United States. But there are, you know, riots may be too strong a word, but there's people out there pushing back against the cops in the streets and throwing rocks and bottles. Wow. And, yeah, and we just don't hear about it. So anyway, yeah, we- that's such a small thing, but it's fun to put those little details in the book. So that when you do close it, because I'm supposed to entertain you, but right. when you close the book and you say, gosh, wow, I actually feel like I learned a couple things. For me, that's the icing on the cake as an author. Absolutely. Absolutely. Rising Tiger is the 21st uh, Harvath novel or the 21st in this series, 22 total? 22 total. And I tell people that my thrillers are like the James Bond movies. You don't ever need to have seen a James Bond movie to go to the theater today and check out the latest one. You will not feel like you've missed out. Uh, if you want to start at the beginning with Lions of Lucerne and work your way up, you can. But if if Rising Tiger sounds like the book you want to read, you can jump right into it and you will not be at a loss not having read previous books of mine. 100 percent. You're, you're right. You could pick up this as your first uh, Harvath novel and have a phenomenal experience, although if you have read the previous 20, then you get all of the depth of the character development and growth um, that we have followed Harvath through. So let me ask you this. When when you start thinking of a new book and it's it's that mm-hmm. time of year where, you know, the the gears start turning and you know that that a new Harvath, you know, adventure is coming up. We know that he is going to be the main protagonist and we know that right. his cast of characters that surround him are are going to show up and, you know, on whichever set piece you decide. Um, it, you started talking about how you start identifying um, things that will make an interesting plot for you. Do, do you start thinking about, you know, what geopolitical set pieces you're going to use and then inject Harvath into that? Or is there ever a sense of this thing is going on in his life? Now let me find a place to let him wrestle with this, which comes, which comes first for you at chicken or the egg. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to give you two answers to that because I've got two different ways. 
Normally what it is, is I stumble across something. I'm a voracious reader, uh, particularly, and I'm a voracious consumer of news. So what'll happen is like for my third book, uh, State of the Union, I had a premise, I was reading something and it was about the end of the Cold War. And I said, gosh, okay. I like to take something and then kind of turn it on its head or turn it around 180 degrees. And so I'd been reading something on the Cold War and I said, what if we didn't win the Cold War at least not like we think. So it wasn't like a revisionist history, but what if Russia just rolled over and played dead, knowing we wouldn't invade right. and we'd probably flood their economy with money, trying to get them to democratize and to embrace capitalism. Uh, and they could take that money and invest it in weapon systems and things like this secretly on the side. So I like to take a big thing and turn it around. Uh, I want something that's going to... so. David Morrell, uh, in his book about writing, and David Morrell is a fabulous thriller author. He's most famous for having created Rambo, but he's written such great espionage uh, fiction. Uh, Burnt Sienna is one of my favorite, favorite books by David. But David talks about coming up with an idea that's going to keep you excited for the year it's going to take writing this. So I like to pick something that I don't know a lot about, for instance, India. And what I do is I, I find the big geopolitical set piece. I try to figure out what a problem involving that set piece would be for the United States. And then Harvath becomes the answer to that problem. So that's kind of how that works. Uh, so it's geopolitical set piece first. What's the problem? How does it pose a threat to the United States that we'd need to inject Harvath there to fix this and then get Harvath in there? The only time it hasn't worked out that way, Hank, is a couple of years ago uh, with my book Backlash. Barnes and Noble asked if I would do a special edition book for them and they wanted a bonus chapter. And so uh, I ended up writing a chapter that was uh, about somebody because Harvath does something at the end of Backlash and somebody decides to put a hundred million dollar bounty on Harvath. This was the bonus chapter. Ooh. We see this whole thing being set up in, in Vietnam uh, with this guy who's kind of a middleman for assassins. And I wrote it. Great. It went out to, if you bought that edition at Barnes & Noble, you got, this, you got this bonus chapter. I didn't realize that like the Marvel universe, if you sit through a Marvel movie and you sit through the credits, you get a little added. My kids love this. You get an added right. bonus kind of little thing that pops up in the middle of the of the credits. Well, that becomes whatever happens in that little thing becomes part of the Marvel universe. And I realized, oh, my God, I can't just have Harvath wake up uh, in the next book in near dark and go, whoo, what a nightmare that was. I thought I right. was being hunted by all these assassins for a hundred million dollar <laughs> bounty. I actually had to use that bonus chapter as the opening chapter for near dark. And so that was the only time where I had a book where I hadn't picked a big, picked a big geopolitical set piece. It was kind of uh, this problem existed and I had to get Harvath out of it. So it's the one time in my career uh, that my process has been uh, different. Gotcha. Um, this book um, is is about 330 pages long, yeah. I think, for the print yep. edition. Um, which is a little smaller than some of the the previous Harvath books, but uh, is it, I I don't how do I say this? Um, I I don't think it could have been one page longer. Um, it it is it is uh, it is breakneck pace. Um, it, 
in the best way. Like I had to keep turning pages. It was just, oh, thank and, you. and it was, it, it was, it was like, um, and, and I get what you were saying about when you're outlining and, and you're uh, saying this scene, this scene, this scene needs to have action. And you, you wanted every scene to be green. I think it, your yeah. color code uh, for it. it. It feels like that when you're reading it, like, Good. like, like I just, um, um, I would have to put it down to catch my breath sometimes, you know, it, it felt like that. <laughs> That's you know? awesome. Um, did um when you're planning out a book when you're kind of working on that outline um do you have an idea of i mean i mean you know it's the 21st book you kind of do you kind of understand the the formula and i don't mean that in a bad way that that a book kind of takes that that there are rising action there's places where you let us right, catch our yeah. breath or you yeah. know and and it's going to wind up at a certain point um it is does it follow like that for you no. or is it just the story no and when i was oops my, <laughs> okay. shut my camera off here i bumped a button um so when i was uh, when i was working on this book when i when i mentioned to you that i was color coding my chapters because i wanted action yeah i have I, it's it's not even a spreadsheet it's a table with columns in rows that it's in it's in microsoft word okay. i only enter in information once i've written that chapter i don't outline ah, hank at okay. all i do not so you're outlining answer. after the fact so i'm just putting stuff into the spreadsheet once that chapter is written so that goes into the spreadsheet so i can at least track how much action i've had what time of day was the you know and i will color code for action but i'll also color code for characters so i'll know okay. when i look at it okay i've written 15 chapters so i can see that in this table uh, and it's been five chapters since I've seen the bad guy. I want to see the bad guy again. That's enough sure. time to have not seen him. So that's, so I don't outline, I don't know what's going to happen next. It's a very, very organic process, which can create a lot of stress. Um, <laughs> because you come in the next morning and you don't know what's going to happen. I, I don't know. So it really takes a tremendous amount of self-discipline. You have to sit down and there's an old saying about writing that if the tap isn't open, the words don't, the water doesn't flow. So you have to sit in front of that computer. You have to shut out all the other distractions and you've got to focus, um, on what you're doing. So that can be very stressful, but I wouldn't have it any other way because I, I like to say that I want to have the experience writing the book that you're going to have reading it. So if I don't know how Harvest going to get out of this, uh, then you're not going to know how, you know, it's like, I joke around. I take the first five ideas that come to me about how he's going to get himself out of this. And I throw them away, you know, cause if <laughs> I've got these five ideas, then that means probably a lot of other people are, are thinking somewhere on that spectrum of those five. So those have all got to go. And I got to come up with something, something different for how to, uh, how to extract Harvest from whatever situation uh, he's in. In fact, in rising tiger, I wrote, uh, it almost like almost like a James Bond movie. When you when you come to Harvath in the third chapter, uh, because we've got the big attack in the uh, Himalayas between uh, when the Chinese attack the Indians, we've got the shadow diplomat that's been sent to Jaipur to try to bring the Indians on board this idea of a uh, of an Asian NATO with India at the hub, and then you get Harvath in chapter three and you catch him mid mission. He is right. in a mission and it has gone to crud and he's got to <laughs> battle his way out of this. And it's the longest action sequence I've ever written for Harvath. And I just said, I, no matter how many chapters it takes, and my chapters are very short, 
crisp cinematic chapters. You know, I, I, I write three chapters and it takes up the space. I used to write one chapter earlier in my career. It's just, I'm competing against the internet now and in uh, binging stuff on Netflix. And I just like shorter chapters. That's part of my yeah. craft that's, that's evolved. But I said, no matter how many chapters this takes, I've got to get Harvath to the end and I can't break away. I, I just, I want people to read this whole chunk. And what was really cool, and I have it up on my website now, bradthor.com, is the audio division of Simon & Schuster uh, published. They said, we're going to give you a teaser. We really like this opening with Harvath. And in fact, we're going to do something we've never done before. Instead of just putting out one chapter, we are going to give you this entire scene and it's over 20 minutes, and we're going we're gonna to allow you to publish that on your website as a teaser for fans because we don't think it's fair to leave people hanging. So it was really That's cool. awesome. Yeah, it was awesome. First time we've ever done that, so that, I thought that was neat. That's so cool. Well, let, let's touch for just a minute on the old uh, Panzer versus Plotter debate. Um, mm -hmm. since, since you uh, have outed yourself as a, as a as Panzer, some people that are pantsers and and i i fall somewhere in between i'm i'm not a hardcore planner at all but but i i i know a few things that i kind of hold in my head as as i write and and i found out that most pantsers are kind of that way um but some people that that pants um will will finish a first draft and then they they then you know their revision process uh, can become a lot like outlining and they kind of identify the pieces and and find out what needs to be tightened up and and things like that. It it sounds like you kind of do that as you go, where you are documenting everything. Um, do you do you ever revise in the middle of your first draft as you are doing that? I I that, will that send. Table? No, my wife will read my first draft. I don't even read it. So I write wow. it and I'm done with it. So my wife will read it and I call her Zorro because she's got a red pen and she'll <laughs> go through and say, I get it that there was a lot of time between writing chapter five and writing chapter 45, but you're repeating stuff in 45 that you said in five. You don't need this in there. Take this out. Wow. And she knows this. She can see this because she's reading from page one all the way through the manuscript. Right. I will write a book and I'm done. I do not read the draft. I don't go in and make any changes unless my wife says something needs to be fixed or my editor. My editor, because my wife is such a good editor, my editor gets an unbelievably clean manuscript. It, wow. And there's no fat to be trimmed. Uh, it's funny. I got asked again this year, oh, such and such account uh, would love a bonus chapter. And I said, no. I said, I'm not doing it. I said, I, I am never going to never say never. But I said, I'm not doing it. I said, it is so hard. I said, first of all, please thank this re retailer. I love them. Yeah. They're, they're great. But it is so hard for me to write a book a year of this caliber. Uh, and David Brown, I was joking with David, and David said, <laughs> if your book needed an extra chapter, it would have been in there. Right. You're not a guy that, you know, you leave people at the end of the book feeling like things didn't get tied up and all this kind of stuff. Um, and there's there's also an issue of I, I don't like the idea of, OK, come buy my car, but you can get it with air conditioning if you go over to this other dealership. I don't think it's fair to do to readers. Yeah. And uh, I understand why retailers want a special edition and I'll do sign books and things like this. But it really is so hard to come up with an extra chapter. And I count on people to pre-order the book. 
right? So yeah. it, it's very because those sales count as day one sales, and it really sends a signal to the marketplace how the book is doing in pre-orders and all that kind of stuff. So I just I understand it from the retailer's perspective. I don't necessarily know that they pause and look at it from the author's perspective about putting an extra chapter. And that was the other thing too. One of these situations, I said, okay, um, you've had it in your book now or in your stores you've had this bonus chapter for uh x amount of time i'd like to put it up on my website no no no. we need it for a whole year and i was just like you know i can't do that to my readers i can't yeah. say because you didn't buy the book from this person you aren't going to get this bonus material so i just thought the the equitable way to do it the thing because at the end of the day i love the retailers i i they put books in people's hands and they are so important to the process but if you look at it from my perspective, I work for the readers, Hank. I don't even work right. for Simon & Schuster. The readers are my employers, and right. I want them happy. And I am not going to – you know, if I'm a carpenter and I'm working in five houses, I'm not going to work harder in house one than I work in house five. I'm not going to give you some extra molding in house one and, and scrimp in house five. It's not how I'm, yeah. it's not how I'm wired. So, uh, I don't know how I got on this whole thing about bonus <laughs> chapters and stuff like that, but so it, it is, it, there's no fat in my process. There's no, there are no pages laying on the floor when I'm done editing. I, I write the book and I, I send it out. And the only time I revisit the book is if my wife says something's missing or my editor says, Hey, this didn't make sense. You need to explain this a little bit better. That's it. It's just, it's so hard to do a book a year. And I joke, uh, and it's not my joke. I forget who said it, but I said, you know, there's nothing I love more than a deadline because it makes such a beautiful sound as it goes whizzing past. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so there isn't tons of time. It, it's really tough to write a really good book, to do the amount of research I do uh, every year, to come up with the concept. And that is the other thing that's starting to happen now is that um, authors are getting pushed to uh, put out uh, artwork, a title, and a description of next year's book almost on the heels of the most recent book. So it's like Christmas coming into stores earlier. Uh, you know, the, the publisher says, okay, well, what's the next one? And it's like, okay, I'm going to catch my breath. I'll find, you know, I'll find my thing. But it, it seems like the process over the last couple of years in particular has sped up there. It feels like I've got less downtime to kind of just allow a, a, an idea to organically grow. Uh, but it has to, it's still art. I get it. It's art and commerce. Uh, it's show and business, but right. It is there is a there's a lot of heat to get the next one into the marketplace, get it up, start taking the pre-orders and that kind of stuff. But uh, listen, people are reading more now. These last couple of years through the pandemic have been fabulous for the book yeah. business. Absolutely, they have had record years in New York. So good for them, and and the thanks to all the readers out there for all of us authors. Absolutely, um, I've got one more question for you, Brad. Um, sure. Anne Rice told me uh, one time that. For a successful author, especially the blank page is the great equalizer. And it, when you're beginning a new book, you are at the same place on the field as a debut author. You, mm -hmm. You're starting with nothing and and a book has to come out of it somehow. Um, being this is the 21st or 22nd book, uh, however you want to look at it, does when you start that new project each year, um, the blank page, do, does it get easier 
after this many books or no, is it still the same? You are so <laughs> right on. I, so you have just picked up uh, on something that I say repeatedly uh, throughout the year. You would think that it would get easier. It does not. It <laughs> actually gets harder, Hank, because I'm trying to do something different with every book. I'm very Midwestern in my upbringing and my mindset, which is my parents taught me that every day you show up for work, you act as if it's your first day on the job right. and you put in everything you've got, because if you don't, it could very well be your last day on the job. And I love my career, but it's hard. And I want to raise the bar. Uh, and maybe the readers don't even notice that I've raised the bar X amount. Uh, you know, I spend a lot of time reading books about writing in the off season, uh, character development, plot twists, all this kind of stuff, because I really believe that our craft is one where you can continually improve. Yes. So it does not get easier. Every year gets harder for me, uh, again, because I, somebody who works for me likens what I do to having a big theme park. And we have to build a new roller coaster, a new ride, let's say, every year. And there, you know that if you're coming to Six Flags over Brad Thor, that you're going to get exciting rides. You don't know what it's going to look like. So every year I have to create a, a new ride that will, uh, that will thrill all of those uh, customers who have enjoyed all the other rides in the park. But give them something new that they didn't see coming, that they weren't expecting. Uh, I, I had a fabulous review last year where somebody compared what I do to scaling Everest. And that each year I'm scaling Everest, but I'm picking a different face to go up, a more technically challenging face. And so, yes, my goal is to get to the top of Everest. But I'm climbing it in a way that is not familiar for me. And I thought, wow, that's somebody who really gets it. And that is exactly what it's like. Well, at Six Flags over Brad Thor, the new ride <laughs> opens July 5th, and it's called Rising Tiger. Uh, Brad, I, I, I say this with all uh, sincerity and honestly, Rising Tiger, I think is, well, I know it is the best thriller I've read this year. And, and oh, I think... You. It, the next six months are it's going to be tough for all of the thrillers to to top this one for me. I think this is going to be my number one for the year. Wow! Um, you know, I've I've been on the journey with you for a long time, and you uh, you never disappoint. And uh, so, you know, as a as a uh, uh, as a professional, thank you uh, for that. And you know, as as someone that I've gotten to know over the last several years, um, it, it it never wanes. Uh, it's it's wonderful each year. Rising Tiger, go grab it today. We'll put links to it in the show notes. Um, tell everybody your your website one more time where they can go get that audio sample. It's Brad, B-R-A-D, Thor, T-H-O-R, dot com. Got a big banner on the front page for Rising Tiger. Just click on that. It'll take you to the Rising Tiger page, and you can read the first two chapters or listen to that nice action chunk if you want the audio sample. And uh, playlist, too. I like doing playlists, the music that I'm putting in the books. It's kind of nice. fun to assemble that as a blog post there. So, bradthor.com. Excellent. We'll send everyone to see you and to pick up their copy of Rising Tiger. Brad, always a pleasure. Thank you for joining me again. Ah, it's my pleasure. Good talking with you. And uh, I look forward to visiting uh, every summer with you, Hank. So thank you for having me back. 